Hello, you're listening to the 10x9 Lockdown Podcast. I'm Paul Doran, co-founder with Podrigotuma of 10x9, and as you probably know, we've moved our live event to Zoom on a fortnightly basis. The stories are amazing as always, and our audience the best. If you haven't yet, you should join us wherever you are in the world. All the details are on the website, 10x9.com. And just to give you a flavour, here's Podrig opening our evening this week. Hello everyone, you're very welcome to 10 by 9 great to see you all, look at you all magnificent people, there's Heather Fleming from whom we will be hearing later on, waving to people, uh, there you are Lisa Murley, and great, great to have you in here, and Becky from Indiana is here, lovely to have Becky, Becky used to live in Belfast and was regularly at 10 by 9 for the first few years, and Dennis from Canada, lovely to have you here, and Heidi, great to have you from um also from the country of Canada. Um, are there any Irish people here? <laughs> people from all over the place. Well, Moiraes and Fiona, yes. Um, there's another Canadian, Mitch. Hi, Mitch. Nice to see you inside here. Uh, some of you will not have been to a 10 by 9 before. And a 10 by 9 is where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to have to tell a true story from their life. Paul and I started it in the black box in Belfast in uh, about nine years ago now coming close to 10 and um, we started in the front room of the black box which is their smaller venue and we had about 30 people that first night i'm paul doran he's Padre Tuma. uh he's from cork i'm from Derry, so neither of us is a belfast native it is such a joy to see so many familiar and unfamiliar faces you've really no idea this is the highlight of my fortnight it really is i need to and like everybody, I need to get out more. A few years ago, I was at a wedding and I was sitting next to somebody from Kerry. And this is all especially for Mary Waldron, who's just come in and is from Kerry. Um, I was at a wedding and I was sitting next to somebody from Kerry. I could hear the way that she was talking that she was from Kerry because she kept on saying Teshko and Aru, Aru now, Aru well. Anyway, I said, my grandfather was from Kerry. I was hoping that I would get a little bit of kind of kudos. And she said, what part of Kerry now? And I said, oh, from Abbey Dorney. And she looked at me with utter disgust. And she said, that'll be North Kerry now. And she turned away and didn't talk to me for the rest of the night. That was the end of that. Nobody came to rescue me whatsoever. Um, apparently, North Kerry and South Kerry, there is a border down the middle of that kingdom that is more sophisticated and complex and unbreakable than the border um, between the North and the Republic. Ah, great to have Podrig on the podcast for a change. We've three stories for you on this podcast, as well as a surprise at the end. The theme was rescue, and it attracted five first-timers. Here's one of them, Kevin McGlade, who joined us from Sarnia in Ontario. For a short period of my childhood, my dad worked in Canada, while my mum, sister and I lived in Northern Ireland. Money was tight, and we lived with my grandparents in a cosy, semi-detached house in Nine Clover Hill Walk. My grandfather would excitedly cook us liver and onions every morning for breakfast, much to my sister and my distress. And the house was heated at 30 degrees centigrade all year round to tackle my grandma's arthritis. Sam, will you shut that door? There's a draft. Every few weeks, we would travel to Belfast for a big family gatherings on my dad's side. At these family events, my uncles and male cousins would ritualistically congregate in the kitchen. The smell of old spice and regal king-size cigarettes hung heavy in the air as they consumed alarming amounts of Guinness while discussing Liverpool Football Club. 
I was always more comfortable in the front room with my aunts performing songs from my school play or doing impressions of Steve Irwin. Crikey, look at that massive crock. I'm gonna poke this stick right in his eye. That'll really set him off. But alas, hanging out in the kitchen with the men was a rite of passage and I had to serve my time. I would quietly sit in the corner and listen as they talked about, with such passion and conviction about legends such as Ian Rush, John Barnes and Peter Beardsley. So that Christmas, all I wanted was the latest Liverpool football shirt. It was bright red, had the iconic Adidas three stripe down the sleeves and most memorably had Candy, a popular 90s household whites good brand sponsor on the front. I was convinced this was the key to my family's male social order. I remember each day in the playground, I would admire it as I swapped Panini stickers of Bruce Grobler and David Burroughs with my schoolmates. Got, 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 need it, need it, got, got. There's just something about that shirt. Christmas morning came and I ran downstairs like every other excited kid ready to open up my presents. An explosive cocktail of excitement and anticipation coursing through my small nine-year-old body. I had it all planned out. I was going to put the shirt on straight away, then run around to my best friend Neil Street for a Christmas morning kickabout. After the mandatory stocking opening, a few standard warm-up gifts, socks, selection box, cassette tapes, etc., etc., my mum handed me my final present. This was it. This was the candy shirt. But it wasn't. Instead, I got a plain, shiny, red, brandless sports shirt with an ironed-on Liverpool badge. My heart sank, but I couldn't tell my mum. I knew money was tight and she'd done her best with dad being away. I smiled, hugged her and set the shirt by the tree. The next week back at school, I nervously wore the shirt to football training. And at the end of practice, I got into a quarrel with another kid over a bad tackle. Then the inevitable and feared insult was hurled. Yeah. Well, you're wearing a fake Liverpool top. I felt a lump in my throat and the tears well up in my eyes. I was deeply embarrassed and lost for words. All eyes were on me and the pain of this kid's cut down made a comeback impossible. Then, out of nowhere, my best friend Neil declares, it's their new training shirt, you idiot. He said it with such conviction that everyone in the team believed him. He also had the clout of being one of the team's best footballers. If he said it, then it must be true. All of a sudden, my cheap market stall Liverpool football shirt was transformed into a rare, hard to get Liverpool training shirt. I wiped away my tears, puffed out my chest and walked proudly back to the changing room in my Liverpool training shirt. I'll never forget that moment. Neil rescued me. He stood alongside me. He used his voice when I didn't have one. I'm 38 years old and I still want to be a guy like nine-year-old Neil. Thank you so much, Kevin. That was a brilliant story. 
Now, if you want to tell a story, get in touch. And if you're unsure of anything, just check out our guidelines on the website. In fact, everything you need to know about 10 by 9 and more is there. Okay, next up is one of our regulars. It's Heather Fleming. A woman jumped out from the side of the road, waving her arms to get us to stop. We were driving an enormous ancient motorhome that was almost empty of diesel, literally running on fumes. My partner Gillian said, we can't stop. The garage closes in five minutes. I said, just slow down and we'll make sure that she's okay. This was in France. I was hoping she spoke English because this was going to be a swift exchange. We slowed right down. I ventured, bonjour. She was overjoyed. Oh, thank you for stopping. I've broken down. Have you got jump leads? I'm sorry, we can't stop. We'll come back in 20 minutes. No, please stop. She started to plead. I leaned out the window. We'll be back. She just shook her head, utterly miserable. She knew there was no chance of us coming back. That service station was a little further away than we thought. The fuel gauge was now well below empty. It looked very likely that we were going to run out of diesel. I had visions of us standing at the side of the road trying to wave people down. Instant karma. We were both very silent. You know that really nervous, anxious silence where neither of you are breathing? just before the recrimination stage. What a relief when the service station finally appeared. Now that we had a full tank of diesel, we could go back and help the woman on the road. Dear lover, she was still standing there and her wee face just lit up with delight to see us returning. She told us to turn off the road and drive a few meters up a wee lane where she had parked. The lane opened out into a field. Suddenly, from nowhere, a crowd of men appeared and came running over to us. Oh no, she was just the decoy. This was a trap. This was exactly the kind of thing we would warn other people about. How stupid and naive were we? The men all crowded around the motorhome, forcing us to stop. My heart was jumping out of my chest. Terrifying images of how this would end flashed through my mind. Then I said, hang on a minute, Gillian. They're all wearing cycling outfits. Mad axe murderers don't usually wear lycra. One guy was knocking the window. Have you got jump leads? <sighs> Massacre averted. It was just a breakdown. They were cycling from London to Paris on a big charity event and their support van had broken down. The woman, Emma, was the van driver transporting their luggage, tools and food. We got out and went over to have a wee look at the broken down van. At this point, all of them, except one, wandered away and lay down flat out on their backs on the grass. 
we could hear rather dismissive murmuring, like, mm, it's just a couple of women, Irish or Welsh or something. I felt angry at their demeaning attitude. But there was also a creeping sense of shame. They were probably right. Sure, what could we do? What did we know about fixing a van? Gillian asked, what happens when you try to start the van? Look, love, it's just the battery. We need jump leads. Okay, well, we've got jump leads. But I'm just wondering, when you turn the ignition, did the engine try and turn over a wee bit? No. Look, it's absolutely dead. Can you just get the jump leads? Yes, yes, of course. But I'm thinking it's something else if the engine didn't even try to start a wee bit. He put his hands on his hips, exasperated. <sighs> We've trained for months for this. If we don't get going soon, we'll just be disqualified. These were his words. But inwardly, I knew he was thinking, oh, shut up, woman. Would you just get the freaking jump leads? Gillian went to the boot of our motorhome and started lifting out various boxes of prick. I was left with Mr. Grumpy. He wasn't in the mood for jovial chit-chat. I joined Jelly at the back of our van. She said, I'll try the jump leads to calm him down, but I don't hold out much hope. I don't think the battery's the problem. It sounds more like the starter motor. We'd driven a lot of old jalopies in our day and had learned a wee bit about starting problems. We drove our van tight up against their van, nose to nose that sense of intimacy, of almost touching, just highlighted the distance and tension between Mr. Grumpy and us. Poor Emma was walking about, wringing her hands in despair and giving us looks that said, I'm so sorry about all this. I'm sorry he's such an ass." Jillian jumped out and went to connect the two batteries with the leads. Mr. Grumpy snatched them off her and said, Leave it, I'll do that. When he had connected both batteries, I switched on our engine and Gillian turned the ignition to start their van. Nothing. We tried again. I revved up the engine to give more power. Nothing. Just the thundering silence of defeat. Mr. Grumpy jumped into the driver's seat he was determined that this van was going to start. We went through the whole procedure a few more times with the same result. If testosterone, frustration and anger could have breathed life into that van, it would have started on the button. The other dozen or so guys lying down in the grass had popped up their heads in hopefulness only to be bitterly disappointed. I felt sorry for them. I could imagine the months and months of preparation, training and anticipation for this amazing event. All for nothing. Meanwhile, 
Jilly was looking into the engine and saying to Mr. Grumpy, you see, I think it might be your starter motor. He just looked blank, utterly deflated, unable to pretend that he even knew what a starter motor was or even where it might be in that whole conglomeration of annoyance under the bonnet. Gillian asked him, have you got a hammer? He looked at her. <laughs> You're not going to take a hammer to the engine. Well, it's broke anyway. Like, you're not exactly going anywhere fast. Emma, meanwhile, proudly presented their toolbox. Yes, she exclaimed. We do have a hammer. She rummaged through a random assortment of tools, which I noticed included wallpapering scissors, a hole punch for leather, and a hammer. Gillian said, look, do you see this? This is your starter motor. I'm just gonna head it a week down with the hammer. And as she was about to give it a bang, Mr. Grumpy yelled, careful, for God's sake. He was one aggravating, undermining, ungrateful yap. I felt like saying, right, that's enough. Come on, Gillian. We could be parked up by a sunny beach with a glass of wine in our hands instead of listening to this. But she patiently mustered on. She lifted her arm and get banged the hammer on the metal casing. It did sound a bit grim. The lying down men were shaking their heads in disbelief and tut-tutting. She asked Grumpy Bum to get in and turn the ignition key. He huffed and puffed, smirked, <laughs> like this was going to do any good. Flipping waste of time, stupid bloody woman. He turned the key and at the same time, Gillian banged the starter motor with the hammer. Flip me, the engine roared into life. His eyes nearly popped out of his head. The broadest smile filled his face and he looked like he might cry. He got out of the cab and punched the air. He jumped up and down. He hugged us, shouting, Oh, thank you, thank you. You have no idea what that means. The lying down men sprang up onto their feet and came bounding over in disbelief and joy. Emma was in tears. We got smothered in hugs and kisses. Photos were taken for their website. They were on the road again and back in the race to Paris. Oh, Heather, that van has been a treasure trove of stories. Thanks so much. And well done, Gillian, the hero of the hour. By the way, you can see all our Zoom events on our YouTube channel. So go check them out. They're all in very manageable chunks. And now the begging bit. 10x9 is always free and always will be, but like many people and organisations, we've taken a major financial hit these past few months, as the work that subsidises what we do has dried up. But we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period, which hopefully is drawing to a close. So a big thank you this month to Ashley Hunter, Darren Chittick, Jade Irwin, Adele Roddy, Stephen Starr, Miriam Ulliman and Andrew Wright. At least you can be sure we aren't spending it in the pub. 
Now this is where I say goodbye to you. There's another story and a special treat to come, so keep listening, but that's it from me. Be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, Instagram. Check out the website and get in touch. And don't forget the YouTube channel, just in case you want to get a look at some of our storytellers. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed, and published by Paul Doran. Me, in other words. I'll be back with another podcast soon. Until then, stay safe. And here is first-timer Stephen Ebbinghouse, who joined us from London with his rescue story. Take it away, Stephen. It was the first week of February. I just handed in my notice, and I didn't have a plan B. What do you think you'll do next? Asked my boss. He was trying to be kind. I sort of grimaced, my eyebrows and shoulders raised, and looked at the floor, lost for words. I didn't know. I decided I'd stay in London. I liked my shared house here off the Holloway Road, living with two other violin makers. I liked the halal butchers, the Greek greengrocers, and the Turkish shop on the Seven Sisters Road that sells everything. I liked playing fiddle at the Lamb on Tuesday nights, where I was quickly made welcome as part of a traditional music session alongside plumbers, joiners, and music teachers from Donegal, Leitrim, and Tipperary, most of whom moved to London in the 1970s. I was going to stay here. I just needed to work out what I was going to do to pay the rent. I decided my next job would tick all the boxes for fulfillment and well-being. It would be sociable. I would be helping other people to reach their full potential. There'd be lots of physical exercise and little stress. I signed up for a week-long course to gain the qualification necessary to take up employment as a swimming pool lifeguard. The course was held in the UCL Students' Union pool during the February half-term week. There were 10 of us, two sixth formers from a diving club in Chiswick, a young lady from New Zealand on her gap year, and Elliot, a retired city banker who was doing the course so he could lifeguard the swimming pool at his kids' private school. Despite being the oldest and also most solidly built member of the group, Elliot was also easily the best swimmer, putting the rest of us to shame with his effortlessly efficient front crawl. He had trained for Ironman triathlons in his day. After a lengthy PowerPoint introduction, we went downstairs to the pool to learn the rescues. At their most basic, these involved kneeling at the poolside, throwing a float attached to a strap to a swimmer in trouble. We learned how to swim on our sides, propelling ourselves through the water with one arm, the other firmly wrapped around supporting the casualty under the shoulders or around the hips. We learned how to swim towing an unconscious casualty, left arm extended, palm under their chin, keeping their mouth and nose clear of the water. We paired up to practice rescuing each other, in the process quickly finding out who was a floater and who was a sinker. We laughed and helped each other and pushed ourselves. We practiced CPR on the dummies and attached the shock pads from an automatic defibrillator. These devices have a recorded voice track which tells you to attach the pads and tells you when to stand clear, all with the crisp diction and received pronunciation of a Radio 4 presenter from the early 1960s. The most involved of the rescues involved taking a casualty with a suspected spinal injury out of the pool. This person would be found floating face down in the water and you would have to turn them over, 
and get them out to the poolside, lift them up onto the side, obviously trying to keep their spine in one position. And this required a coordinated effort from a team of about four lifeguards. And the person who had the casualties head would coordinate the rest of the lifeguards to make sure that there were no unexpected twists or turns. So when we were practicing this rescue, and one more thing that could happen is when your casualty gets to the poolside, they might start to be sick if they've swallowed water or something. So the instructor will say, your casualty is being sick and you would turn the patient on, or their casualty onto their side so they could be sick without choking on it. So we were practicing this rescue and I was the lead rescuer. I was at the head and we got our patient out onto the poolside to which point we were meant to perform this maneuver of turning them onto their side, which is called the log roll. So to coordinate your team, one at the head, one holding across the shoulders, one holding the middle of the torso, one supporting the hips, you would say log roll, one, two, three, and you would all turn the person in one coordinated motion. So we'd reached this stage of the rescue. The instructor says, your casualty is being sick, and I'm at the head, and he looks at me and he says, say the magic words. Now, an instinctive training that I had received much earlier in life kicked in and without thinking, I looked up at him and said, please. Anyway, Friday came round quickly and with it, the assessment. We all passed a multiple choice paper. We all remembered to tell the examiner to please call for an ambulance before starting chest compressions on the dummy. We passed our timed swims with a second to spare and dived in at the deep end to rescue the mannequin from the pool floor three and a half metres down. We all received our NPLQs from the RLSS and within a month, every leisure centre, gym and health club everywhere was closed indefinitely. I never got to wear the yellow t-shirt with the red shorts. I never sat up high in the white plastic chair nor blew a lifeguard's whistle. After spending a couple of weeks in Islington Central Library and Finsbury Park Job Centre scrolling through indeed.co.uk, I found a different job by different means. Pushing my bike down a side street in the rain, I saw a man walking out of a residential building carrying a large trapezium-shaped template made of strips of green MDF screwed together. Excuse me, I asked. I'm looking for work as a joiner carpenter. I look like you might be doing some interior fitting there. Do you have any idea where I could leave my CV in? Anna was from Holland and had trained as a boat builder in East Anglia, restoring yachts and boat, boat yards in England and the Netherlands before moving to London. We worked together in his basement workshop building furniture for a month before the lockdown kicked in and he had to stop to look after his kids. But it was enough. I had the wind back in my sails, the spring in my step had sprung, there was a queer stretch in the days, things were looking up. I got another job in a bespoke joinery workshop. My big splash in the leisure industry was looking increasingly unlikely by the day, but I'd got what I needed out of the course. I learned new skills, I swam and cycled every day, developed a huge appetite and fell into bed exhausted at half nine every evening. I felt good about myself and optimistic about the future. And though I hope I will never need to draw on those skills in real life, I'm glad I spent that February week in the basement pool in Bloomsbury 
learning how to get a struggling swimmer out of the water. Oh, Stephen, thanks very much. You're obviously a good man to have around in a crisis. Depends what kind of crisis, Paul. Well, if it's a violin crisis. They, they, I seem to develop the kind of magnetism for those as well, but there you go. I, I'm, I mean, it's, it's not Parkinson here, but I'm just curious. Can you tell us very quickly about the violin making? What, what, what got you into that? So I've been interested in playing the fiddle since I was about 17. And during a previous uh, story adventure, I trained as a carpenter in the north of Germany. And I'd always had violin making in the back of my mind, but I thought I didn't really... I wasn't artistic enough for it. And when I finished my apprenticeship as a carpenter, I thought, if you're going to do have a try at the violin making, now's the time. And I moved to England and went to the New York School of Violin Making and trained there for three years. Thank you. 